people uh, whose background is uh, combined numbers and um, social science at the same time. You spent many years in international development, and after that you emerged in games and more creative projects and intersection of technology and uh, creativity. How has journey happened for you? Cool. So, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting for me. Um, um, I've worked in international development for 10 years and around five years ago, um, this idea came to me. It was actually very interesting. I was in my second uh, master's degree. I was sitting in the classroom in an econ class and the teacher and the student, they were debating about how, what is the solution to Kenya's problems? Okay. And one of them is like, oh, it's education. And the teacher is like, no, it's electricity. And they go into this debate and I zoned out, which you shouldn't do in a classroom, but I did. And I zoned out for a little bit and I started thinking, what if there was like a SimCity version, uh, but for international development, right? Like you did, um, you have the Kenyan economy and you did a little bit of education policy and you go back in time and you erase it and then you do education and you compare the two, right? You can't do that in the real world because once you've done energy you can't really go back and take it back and then I was like oh wow like I mean I'm sure there's games out there for international development and I started doing research and I was just mind blown and I think um, after lots of research many many months I realized that there were four key gaps in serious games the first gap was that serious games themselves are a very, very small portion of the gaming industry, right? Most games that you see are entertainment games. It's a massive industry. And within that, serious games is a very small portion. But even the ones that you see are very much focused on formal education. So educate like history games or games that teach alphabets, but not as much on behavior change, right? So that was the first gap. The second gap I saw was the games that we do see are very much tailored to a Western audience, right? So games that you see do have um, Caucasian characters. Their landscape is usually based in the U.S. Like you always see the Statue of Liberty in New York, you know, it's like, but you just don't see as much depiction of characters globally and or other landscapes. And one of the things with games is that the relatability only comes out when you have um, characters that you look like you or that dress like you, you know, and everything. So that was the second gap. The third gap, which is kind of related to this Western audience thing, was that games were only tailored towards high-end technology, right? So you had your iPhones and your VR and AR and 3D and all of that. But what people are not thinking about is that there are places where bathrooms, toilets are a luxury, but a $20 phone exists, right? So there, there are so many families out there that may not have access to a functioning toilet, but they do have access to that $20 Android phone. 
And I think that that phone is being left out of this movement because everyone is looking at the high-end technology, but we're not making games that, can, that are compatible with these low-end phones. And then my fourth gap that I saw that was really interesting to me was that the price tag of game development is so high. I mean, when I started looking into this, the price tag was around $300,000, $400,000 for a basic game. And that is just prohibitively high for the social sector. No NGO has a budget where they can just put $400,000 or $500,000 just for game development. And we've been able to bring that cost down to one tenth, you know. And so basically looking at these four gaps, um, I, that's kind of, that was inspiration behind starting Grid of saying these are four needs that no one is addressing. Um, we're not seeing games for behavior change. We're not seeing games that are tailored to a global audience, both in terms of the game design, but also technology. And we're not seeing games that are reasonably priced for game development. And so that's what Grid does. So I think that's kind of where I shifted gears. It's funny because I, I, it is a parallel journey. I'm still very much involved in international development, but I'm also now undertaking this parallel journey of tech for good by being the founder of Grid. Um, for instance, there is a detective Dots from UK who be, uh, create books uh, that teach kids how to uh, be involved in computer science, coding, and detect uh, fake news. In terms of the grid games, what kind of a call to action and behavior, behavioral change you are looking for? It's more about awareness, particular skills, maybe training empathy. Uh, what kind of call to action you facilitate? Right. So, um, you know, we actually have um, a, a range of games, right? I mean, so we've made games on reproductive health. We've made games on financial literacy. We're making, we, we just launched a game on climate change on Earth Day called Earth Fenders. And um, as you may know, and we can talk about it in a little bit, we made a game on COVID-19 awareness. So we've made these games, but for each game, we have three key goals which is educate, engage, and empower. So education and awareness, in my opinion, is the first step towards engagement and empowerment, right? So for instance, if you look at our reproductive health games, um, we actually, I'm so proud of this, that we were one of the first studios to ever make a period game, a menstrual health game, and that was to break the stigma around menstrual health. And so it provides education in terms of saying, okay, what are healthy reproductive decisions? What are healthy menstrual health decisions? But then our games go on to engaging. And by engaging, I mean engaging in a conversation, engaging in the idea of taking agency of your own education and saying, hey, you know what? Maybe what I'm hearing from my friends is not accurate information. Maybe there's more out there. So I'm going to engage in the process of educating myself. And then empowerment. So I think one of the key things about some of these, like for instance, with climate change, if you don't know what it is, you may not feel empowered enough to take action, right? But if you understand that, hey, even recycling one bottle or turning to one LED bulb, you know, or being able to know the difference between compost and least recycling or landfill, that can empower you to take action. Right, because the first step of empowerment and agency is the awareness and education. So that's what we try to do. We try to build awareness, and then another step of that is educate. Sorry, 
engagement and empowerment. I do like what you said about empathy, right? So like, for instance, we have two games. Um, one is called Critter Needs. It's actually for compassion towards animals. And the whole game, um, actually, this is a huge issue um, globally, unfortunately, even in the US where you would think that like there's so much awareness around animal rights and animal welfare. We still see so many cases of animal abuse, even in the US, but internationally, it's just, it's, it's, it's mind blowing how big this problem is, right? I mean, people do not treat animals like living beings and, and they're seen, they just inflict pain upon them. And, and our game Critter Needs builds empathy for animals. So you are able to humanize animals, you're able to understand that they feel pain and you're able to understand as you play the game that these are cruel actions and you learn the difference between caring for animals and cruelty towards animals and also learn what you can do, right? So a lot of times people know the why, they don't know the how, right? So it's like, okay, I know animal cruelty is bad, but what can I do to change it? Okay, I know global warming is bad. What can I do to change it, right? And our games kind of provide that, that angle of it. Uh, is there a way uh, to track uh, metrics and maybe feedback from your audience in terms of action, uh, did you uh, which you facilitated? Maybe some statistic, uh, we had an initiative in financial literacy and we achieved uh, some result in particular region or particular uh, group, or for instance, we've made a project uh, in reproductive health and we got uh, great results in this group. Do you have some kind of statistic numbers? Absolutely. So. Um, you know, having trained as an economist, uh, my academic training is as an economist, so I am very, very um, keen to understand the causal impact of things, right, which goes beyond correlation. So saying, because someone did this, that's what led to, to X led to Y, right? So I would love to be able to come to a point where we can build evidence that says, because X number of people played these games, why number of changes happened, right? Why number of behaviors changed. Now, there's a few um, um, challenges with being able to arrive at that result. The first is simply that evaluations that, that establish causal relationships, randomized control trials take years, you know, it's like to actually, where the results come out and everything. We have a strong focus on, on complementing our games with with evaluation so we partnered with academics where we're saying okay um, if you play this game does empathy go up does awareness go up you know and everything those studies are very very nascent right now so we, we expect those results to come out in a few years but that doesn't stop us from looking at at intermediate data right so we do through our games we so first of all, we captured usage, downloads, right? Like how many people did we reach? How many people downloaded the game? You know, what is the spread of the game? Then we capture what we call, so for instance, in our reproductive health game, which was with um, Georgetown University's Institute of Reproductive Health, we actually had throughout the game what we call knowledge checkpoints, okay? So as you were going through the game, so for instance, if you wanted to earn more score, you had to answer questions. And that those knowledge checkpoints give us the learning journey of the player within the game, right? So as you go along, we're able to say, oh, 
their awareness about family planning methods went up or their awareness about fertility cycles went up because they were able to answer this question right. So you do see a learning progression. Uh, again, it's not causal. And another reason that causal is so hard to measure is also that games are not the only thing that is changing behavior, right? Like you have a lot of other things that are happening around behavior science that change behaviors. So I'd say we're not there yet. Like we can't, I can't pick up one game and be like, this is the one game that has changed reproductive health in Pakistan. Like I, I hope that is my goal. We're not there yet. But that is very much in our minds when we do data collection through our games to say it's not just usage, but how far can we go on understanding the learning progression in games? In terms of sure. uh, uh, demographic, uh, who typically uh, use your games? More about kids, young adults, maybe parents. And my second question, uh, are your games mostly focused on individual action or group action? For instance, you have a game that asks me to um, invite my friends in order to make something together and solve particular problem problems. Very cool. So let me take your first question first, because I think I think I like I like it. It it, it, it excites me. It sends my the wheels in my brain turning. So I think um, it's very interesting. We have a trade off, Yana. You know. So what's happening, especially with the audience, and this links to the audience that we work with, is like I mentioned, we want to make games that are accessible by a global audience. Okay. And so I mean. Someone sitting on the metro in DC should be able to play our games, but also um, someone in a farm in Pakistan or India should also be able to play the same game, right? Now that limits us, especially in terms, if you think about it, like, like if you have a $20 smartphone, there's only so much you can put on it, right? So the game has, you don't have internet connectivity, so the game should be able to be played offline. You do not have a lot of, storage space so the game has to be small in size you know and then you have this idea that it's probably going to be single player so unfortunately um most of our games have been on this idea of let's let's make sure that they're compatible with the lowest common denominator however what we're starting to do is to have that baseline but then build it up right so if you do have internet connectivity, one of the things we've been thinking about, for instance, is for our climate change game. So imagine Pokemon Go, but for climate change, right? So imagine if you were actually able to go out and pick up um, uh, a bottle and then recycle it, and then your friends say, yes, he did a good job, then you get a reward. So how do you link the virtual world and the real world in games? Because I think that's such a huge opportunity. Like even if you think about COVID-19, so I actually see a lot of parallels between climate change and COVID-19 because they, both of them are global crises that require action at the community level. So exactly what you're saying, it's something, can, can you mobilize an entire community around a shared goal? And I think that games really have the uh, ability to do that, like entertainment games, bring together hordes and hordes of people. You know, you had millions of people searching for these Pokemons. So I think like that's really something we can do. We haven't done it yet because our demographic so far has been very much, let's make sure that we don't exclude people. But I think now we're at that point where we can build a pyramid of saying, okay, the most basic version of the game, 
a single player can be played offline you know this is what it is but then on top of it if you do have internet connectivity then you can play a multiplayer game on top of that here's some virtual linkages to the real life so that's something we're moving in the direction of uh you mentioned uh pokemon go uh is there another example of something uh, of some kind of a mainstream game uh, what was uh, your inspiration and or maybe you have a plan to pair this game with some kind of a action uh project so we do draw i mean like i grew up playing games right so i mean so we do draw on some of these games like i mean i'm i sound so old school saying this but tetris and bingo were some of my favorite games so if you look at our climate change game right now it has a climate bingo in it you know where where you go through like bingo level or then there's tetris but with climate actions you know so like uh, they do get inspired um by them one of my favorite games is was sims um you know so i would love to move in that direction of like and we we've used some of these inspirations from sims where you simulate um a classroom and then people are walking around and then you engage with for instance the fountain that's in the classroom or like or the blackboard or something so so we do draw inspiration in terms of game design um i think like for instance the animal the critter needs game it has a its first level is kind of inspired by the mario like you have a character running across but instead of mario it's a donkey you know it's like so we we have all of these things um you see tidbits of inspiration obviously we can't pick up the whole game i mean we would be in a legal lawsuit if we did that but you do see tidbits of um inspiration in the game design building on things that we were really passionate about but my own favorite two games all time favorites have been sims and sonic So you'll see a lot of those in there. Um let's talk hackathons. Uh personally I believe that uh, we we have an Im- amazing uh, impact and they able to bring some practical ideas uh, against uh, real world challenges. Um in your opinion uh how is easy to pair uh, your games and some hackathons? For instance, I'm an organization and uh, in the first day my fellows play your game and the next day it facilitates some action uh, and we start to create something. Uh, how is easy to implement your games for organization requirements in some programs, accelerators, incubators for change for impact? Absolutely. So I think hackathons you know are like a great way of boosting uh, brainstorming and boosting designs and just really getting people like mobilizing people, right? And I think that um one sometimes uh, a limitation of hackathons is that if they start with nothing then it's such a steep curve that by the time you go halfway i see a lot of this happening where you know you make a team and you come up with an idea but then they lose team midway right so uh, but if if it's pitched the way you're saying it where you start with the product you say hey this 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 game on climate change or animal compassion or reproductive health is here now let's see how we can build on it and tweak it and make it better and make it more community oriented i think it helps in two ways one we're always willing to to adapt our games right so we're always willing and looking for partners who we can work with to align our games to different strategic priorities as long as obviously they're in alignment with our core principles and values but i think that that being able to provide that foundation it almost becomes a launching pad 
right? So if you're able to touch and feel something, then you're saying, oh, you know what, now I can build on it. And there's a team right here who can implement my ideas. So we offer two things. We offer the launching pad, but then also the machinery that you need to make the game. So a lot of times I hear people who are like, this game can be made in five days because we have all these students that we put together in one room and that's really like that's good because but again it stops there because game development is iterative and it requires a lot of skills coming together right so you have your designers you have your developers you have your qa people you have your script writers and your most importantly for education games you have your theory of change of how will you actually get to what you were talking about how does the game translate into behavior change and i think that um, if we do it the way you're mentioning it, that you start with a launching pad, then you do the hackathon, and then we provide the machinery to keep it going, I think that's a really, really neat idea. And we would be, I think Grid lends itself to collaborations like that. Uh, currently, you must be focused on a mobile a application. Uh, have you ever thought about making maybe video games for uh, PCs? Is it possible or it's really about some huge amount of resources? Absolutely. So I see mobile games as a sub-portion of video games, right? It's like, and I, I do think that the reason we, we went into mobile games was simply the penetration of smartphones globally. We just know that there's more people who have access to low-end smartphones rather than, for instance, computers or PCs or full gaming systems. Um, but our team is able to develop games for, for mobile, for PC, for all other platforms. It just It's a matter of um, priority and bandwidth. But I'll give you an example. So, for instance, for COVID-19, when we made our game Corona Combat, um, one of the things we realized was that uh, publishing on the Google and Apple Play stores right now is very difficult if, if you're not backed by CDC or WHO. So we actually changed gears and went towards a web version of COVID, Corona Combat. So I think the choice of platform is less influenced by capacity. Uh, we have the capacity to do it, just more influenced by priorities right now. Uh, recently, um, I had uh, several talks with uh, under 18 AI inventors. They're extremely smart. And I try to um, understand what they think about uh, edutainment and educational uh, content for young people, inventors, uh, change makers. And one thing uh, we agree about is that uh, while we have platforms like YouTube, Twitch, uh, it's still pretty challenging to promote uh, content, project, application with push people to think. So there is no problem for a viral thing or uh, or content focus uh, completely on entertainment, but something in between or specifically uh, smart or challenging. It, it's always a difficult uh, topic uh, in, in terms of a strategy. So my question is, uh, how is challenging uh, for, for your project uh, to bring a word about your work to promote your applications? Absolutely. So... I'll, I'll answer that in two ways, Yana. I mean, the first one is this broad idea of promotion for edutainment, right? I think um, um, one of the things I see in the, in the serious game space is they're either too serious or they're just games, you know? So like that balance between education and entertainment 
Um, if you have um, education games that have been built by academics, then there's a lot of times that you see one question and it'll have two pop-up answers and then you choose one and then they're like, oh, I made a game, you know, and you're like, well, you gamified it, but you didn't really make a game. So that, that difference between gamification and game is not very clear a lot of times. But then if you see education games that are made by purely entertainment studios, then they swing too much towards the entertainment side of things, right? Where they're entertaining, but they slip on the message. So it'll be like, oh, good job, you know, environment is important, but then that's it. And then everything else is the entertainment part of it. So I think one important aspect is this balance between education and entertainment. And games that are good, that, that are able to strike that sweet balance between both, actually grow organically themselves, right? So, I mean, they, they, they do have that ability to become more viral because they, at the core of them, they're entertaining, but also educational. However, I will definitely point out that making entertainment viral is a much, much harder task than making entertainment viral, right? And I think that that's where, for instance, for us, we think about two or three ways. So one is your, your traditional ways of pushing apps, social media marketing, you know, getting the word out there, being able to, you know, I mean, the basics of any app that any app does. Then the second is what you're talking about, which is a second tier of like engaging influencers, having TikTok videos, you know, having your YouTube campaigns, having maybe even Twitch channels or something. And that's like, another stream which is which is a kind of a top tier but then the third one that's very important at least for us for our model is partnerships so if you look at it like the people that i'm trying to reach for instance through my reproductive health game in nepal may not be on twitch they may not be you know following the channels on youtube but they are being reached by my partners. So for instance, for the reproductive health game, we were partnering with Georgetown University and they had workshops that were going on in these villages, right? So they were able to reach people in person and say, hey, here's some brochures, but if you want to continue learning about this, here's the game on your phone, right? And so I think that that blended model of promotion of saying, try to reach people who are on in the field, who are grassroots organizations, and tap onto them, and especially schools. So imagine the, the role that hospitals and schools, so we, we always think about it like, imagine if you wanted to make a game on road safety, okay? And every DMV office ended up having a small little QR code that you could scan, and while you were waiting, because you wait three, four hours at the DMV, while you're waiting, if you can play a game on road safety, that is the way to reach people, right? So if you're able to align your promotion mechanisms with your cause, I think that's usually very, very impactful. So I would say for me, it's always the partnerships first, then the social media marketing, and then the third layer of campaigns, be they through influencers, through YouTube or through TikTok or whatever. Uh, you mentioned yeah, that you sure. use uh, various channels, partnerships in order to reach your audience. Uh, do you try to use a, 
uh, complex storytelling uh, campaigns in order to uh, spread a particular launch of the game. For instance, with a particular hashtag, uh, story, um, uh, action, and um, if so, what is your um, favorite uh, campaign you've done uh, for a while? So I I have to say, like I wish we could do more of this, but a lot of good good campaigns, especially good marketing campaigns, require money, and so a lot of our our games that we make are are constrained because it's either you put that money into game development or you put it into marketing, right? So so that's always a trade off that we face. So we don't have as many, but one of my favorite ones again was the one because we had a partnership uh, with Georgetown University. That game is very cool. So it's a Nepalese family and um, you know you have all ages. So you have a young girl and a young boy, then you have a new couple that just got married and then there's an older couple. And they're all thinking about reproductive health decisions, right? Like different kinds, like the young married couple is thinking whether to have a kid or not. The young girl is dealing with her menstrual health. But what's really cool in that one is that there's a goat that's the pet goat of the family. And that goat is like the guiding character through all the game. But then there's also a Yeti. And and as you know, in Nepal, the Yeti is a character that comes from, you know, I mean, the mountains and, and, and it spreads all these bad myths. So the Yeti is spreading myths about menstrual health and reproductive health and everything. So what we did was we did a campaign where like you would have like YouTube videos about the goat you know, talking to you and then the Yeti talking to you and then we had hashtags around, you know, because it was the story of the family saying, hey, these are the reproductive health decisions we make. And the Yeti is like, no, 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 you should not even talk to girls who are on their period. And the goat is like, no, you're wrong. That's not true and everything. So so we did have somewhat of an engagement around that. And I think that was very well received. So again, I wish we could do more of that because all of our games have a story and have cool characters in them, but I think that it's definitely a matter of funding and resources, and I don't think that um, game in the social sector have budgets that are large enough to to support massive marketing campaigns. Uh, you work on Greed uh, since uh 2013. Do you feel that currently it's easier to reach people because we become more aware of particular problems? And for instance, uh, several years ago, you just needed to break the first barrier and it was completely uh, zero awareness. And currently people aware of uh, financial literacy, reproductive health, and, and it's more about expansion of this knowledge, some uh, details or particular action. Absolutely. So I think that within international development, I have seen this shift where there was a time the technology was like the ice cream, like the dessert on the menu, right? So it's like a nice to have, but you don't really need to have it. And slowly, and especially with COVID-19, digital transformation went from being optional to mandatory. Right. So all of a sudden you realize that be it education, be it health, be it social protection, like whatever you're going to do, you will need to bank on technology for it, because a lot of times you're not able to be reach people like travel has come to a halt in person events have come to a halt. But guess what's still ongoing is technology. Right. So I think that 
for me, when I started this, um, when I used to say stuff like, I want to make a period game, people would look, would look at me as if I was crazy. They're like, what do you mean? Like, what, what does that even mean? You know, it's like, or, or I want to make a game on, on COVID-19. And it was like, what does that mean? And I think that for me, the, the conversation becomes easier. And this is how we actually operate, is what we do is we make small, um, basic, almost beta versions of each of these games. So for instance, we'll be like, you know what, climate change is something that we should really make a game on, or financial literacy, or entrepreneurship, or a game to raise awareness about the opioid crisis. You know, Just look at a problem and say, hey, I really think we should make a game on that. So what we do is we make a small basic version of the game and we put it out there so that people can touch and feel it. And then once they do, then they say, oh, you know what, I really want to expand on this. You know, it's like, here's, here's what I want to do, or I want to translate it, or I want to take it to where we are with our programs. So to me, I do think, I do agree with you that the conversation around technology has gotten easier, but also personally for us, the conversation around games has gotten easier because now we have games to show to people. Like we have a suite of around 11 games that we can show to people where they can touch and feel them and say, oh, you know what, now I, I kind of see what you mean. But before that, when I used to just talk about the idea, it was, it was an uphill battle. Uh, recently, you have launched a game focused on COVID-19. Uh, tell us about this. Oh my God, my favorite topic. So my, my recently, so so what happened was um, COVID-19 hit, right? And um, having worked in international development, I actually started freaking out about COVID-19 before it was cool to freak out about COVID-19. Like I was um, around late January, early February, I was like, wow, this is, this is something that's probably going to become an epidemic. And then late February, early, early March was when it was like, okay, this is probably going to be a pandemic. And I remember that at that time, I was able to see two types of information challenges, right? So one was an absolute absence of information, no understanding of what the, the, the disease is, how does it spread, what are the basic symptoms, very basic information, right? That, that now we think is obvious, but it was absolutely absent and i'm talking about a global scale so imagine um the 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 small trader or the shopkeeper in africa or imagine you know the the farmer um, in latin america i don't think they had that that same awareness of what was coming this tsunami that was headed their way and then the other information challenge was very interesting was what who ended up calling the infodemic and this was basically uh, loads and loads of misinformation, right? Fake news and myths. And it's like stuff like if you drink hot tea, then you're going to burn the virus in your throat and it's going to die. Or uh, stuff like you should drink bleach and, and then COVID-19 will go away. Or just anything, right? I mean, like uh, how, how long does it stay in the air? Can it spread? Like just everything. It, there was just so much misinformation around COVID-19 that we decided to make this game um, and it's called Corona Combat. It's a fact-seeking, myth-busting game that takes you through a journey of um, realizing the getting information about COVID-19, but in a fun way. And what it does is not just give you the facts, but also empowers you to question misinformation, right? 
Now we made this game in nine days, um, and it was just it was one of our fa the fastest game we've ever made. And so it's actually limited in gameplay, right? So I mean, it's it's a very basic game design because you just sort statements into myths and facts, and then it gives you a score. But there's two benefits of that. One, we were able to get the game out there because time was of absolute critical importance um, in this scenario. We wanted to make sure that it was out there so people could start using it, but also updates. So the guidance around COVID-19 is changing very rapidly, right? So already since we launched the game on April 10th and already we've updated it three times, you know, because there was guidance around whether pets can get it or not, then that was updated. Then there was guidance around in the US whether you should be wearing masks or not. Because I don't know if you remember, at some point in time, CDC said, don't wear masks. Masks are only for the health workers. And then all of a sudden, it was like, no, 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 everyone should be wearing masks. So that guidance gets updated. So to us, that was really cool. I think for me now, uh, we're, we're focusing on three things. Is one, picking up the same corona combat and translating it into different languages. So we got some support from um, the American Pakistan Foundation to to translate it into Urdu, for instance, to take it to Pakistan. We're looking at other opportunities to translate it into Spanish and other languages. So that's one way. The other is to build on this game, because just imagine, you know, like what you can do to raise awareness, like the way you can simulate hygiene, you can simulate social distancing. Like imagine two people, they bounce against each other, they both get COVID-19, but then if you have a ring around them and they're practicing social distancing, that they don't spread it. Like just being able to simulate the spread of the game, it, there's so many opportunities. Imagine being able to simulate flattening of the curve or just how do you take care of sick people? So I think there's a lot of opportunity on building on the game in terms of its design to incorporate that. But then it's also what you were saying about the real life linkages, right? So if COVID-19 can get linked to contact tracing, like tracing of contact, like who have you been in contact with? Or if Corona Combat could be linked to things like here is where you have a testing near your house, right? So have a map in the game that can show you where's the nearest test center or that can show you supplies. Where do you go if you've run out of masks? Where do you go if you've run out of toilet paper? Because apparently that's a thing now, you know? So it's like just being able to build on the game is definitely something that's on our radar. But yeah, so Corona Combat is a game that raises awareness on COVID-19 and coronavirus. And we just think that education doesn't have to be boring. So that's how we're raising awareness. Uh, you mentioned one of the uh, key problems uh, during COVID-19 is the awareness and fake news. And by the way, it's exactly what we discussed with Wikipedia. We have created a separate article that uh, covered all existing uh, fake news and uh, some kind of uh, typical myths that uh, are not correct. And please right. don't believe in these uh, things. Um, I would love to ask you... Um, we often talk about what's the future of learning uh, after uh, COVID-19, how people will work remotely, uh, learn remotely. Do you plan some kind of a project or game that uh, will teach people how to use uh, stuff like a Discord, Slack, in order to uh, create change, interact each other, maybe uh, uh, launch re uh, remote hackathons and some collaborative innovation uh, sessions and so on? Absolutely. It's it's something that's like, so training 
is a huge thing where games can be used, right? Because it's like before you let people on and you have like a two-step tutorial that no one understands, like being able to show in a game, like uh, imagine I am, I have still been on so many Zoom calls where people forget that their video is on or they forget to mute themselves, you know, and then it's either embarrassing situations or it's just, I mean, it's disruption in the middle of a meeting. And I think that imagine if you could simulate all of those things in a game, you know, so that people, because games have what's called the crystal ball effect. So it's like a crystal ball where you look into it and you look at the future and you say, hey, that's a future I want or that's a future I don't want, right? So if you're able to say, hey, here's a future that's going to have all these remote learning and working opportunities, and these are the things I need to do to prepare for them. So I think that games are very, very effective in teaching skills. And, and one of those skills can be using remote technology, right? Using technology and tools to work remotely and learn remotely. I do think that this is something that would require a collaboration, a partnership with, for instance, Slack or, or you know, I mean, one of these Zoom or, or whichever one, whichever platform it is, Microsoft Teams or whatever it is. But I think that training of people, and this is going to be both at the student level, but also at the organizational level, training is going to become immensely important. And I think games can play a very critical role in those trainings because most trainings let's admit it, are very dry, a little bit boring, and they're not able to capture the audience. So I think games can play a critical role in that, but not just training people to work remotely, but then also working remotely, right? Because remote working is games. I mean, remote learning can involve games. So I think games are, are addressing both of those things. Uh, another problem um, what we will face after COVID-19 pandemic uh, is a lack of trust. And for instance, simple hacks or some physical uh, contact and connection uh, maybe become uh, problematic. Um, do you think about some kind of a project in order to uh, push people love each other again? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think this is going back to what you were saying. It, this is such a cool question because it really makes you think, right? Because this is going back to that whole idea of empathy and stigma, you know? Because I think that um, it is true that if you're able to show in a game that just because, just because you're close to each other or just because um, you're physically distancing does not mean that you socially distance. In my mind, those are two very different things, right? So COVID-19 is asking us to physically distance from each other, but we don't have to socially isolate ourselves or socially distance from each other. So I think that games can play a very important role in saying, imagine like if you had a game and there was someone who was walking around and then if you touch them, then the game could one tell you that actually the probability of getting infected is not 100%. Let's start there. You know, just because you've touched someone does not mean you're dead in the next moment. Like, I mean, let's not overreact. But then also, how do you make contact that's safe, but still keeps the feeling of humanity, right? So I think games are able to, like, you could have a green heart because you you were nice to this person and their happiness went up or something, or you could have a compassion meter in the game that goes higher if you show compassion towards people. And I just, I really do think that COVID-19 will change the fundamental nature of how we interact. 
And I think people will be struggling to find that new normal and new ways to connect. And some of those ways might just be through games. So I can't come and I can't drop off and, and be with you on your birthday, but maybe I can give, show you some love through a game. Like here's a gift virtually to my game or something. And I think that those are things that are going to become really important, you know, ways of expressing love. What's your forecast regarding a market of the games for change? Do you expect uh, growth of the competitors maybe in your field? How many other players try to emerge in this field? Or uh, it's still kind of a niche for really passionate people like you, and not so many are ready for this journey? You know what's been amazing is I've actually seen more and more people join the movement. And I always say this, I think the cake is so big out there that there is no way that I see anyone who's joining as a competitor. I actually see them as a collaborator because there's so much to do and there's no way one company alone can do it, right? So if anything, it helps to have more people come in, to start talking about it, to start planting ideas of saying, how do you think of games to solve some of the social issues that we see around us, any kind of social issue. So I think that I see that it's growing. It's probably not growing at the same level. So the demand is way bigger than the supply right now. And and in a lot of time, places, people don't even think they know that they need games, right? So like they could be organizations, just like you said. So Marriott, for instance, is using games to as part of their interview process. So they're using games like hospitality games, where if, you, if you're going to um, teach someone to do housekeeping, then they do it in the game first, and then they have to pass a test. But it's on the game, so they're not even doing, like, it's way before the shortlisting process that you have to play a game to pass a test, right? Now imagine that's just one tiny proportion of, imagine what games can do for training, you know, if it's a hospitality business, the restaurants, uh, health workers, teaching people how to wear a mask. I mean, I it's amazing how many people don't know how to wear a mask to protect yourself from COVID-19. But I just think that training has a lot of potential. So just all of that to say that there's a, there, there has been growth. I would say I, I now hear a of a lot more people that are coming in this space, but it's nowhere near compared to what it can be and what it should be. But I think it's going to be like, in the next five years, I think we're going to see a lot more growth of games and serious games. Uh, and finally, uh, currently, I, I believe one of the key trends we see today is a shift from what uh, we know as a citizens to digital citizens. So, for instance, uh, just a decade ago, uh, we should uh, be aware of our uh, human rights, maybe some legal things, but today we should know how to uh, define fake news, how to use uh, some si uh, simple robotics. For instance, even educators today uh, become some kind of engineers because uh, teachers try to adopt uh, social robotics, uh, nurses and uh, people at hospitals uh, adopt AI and automation. Uh, in your view, uh, who are Digital, digital citizens and how games for uh, good and for change uh, could affect their skills and what kind of skills you see as a must 
uh, in the future? Absolutely. So I think uh, it's digital citizens, but it's also digital heroes, right? So the one cool thing that technology does is everyone can be a hero, right? So I mean, everyone can 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 make a change, can bring about a difference. Um, irrespective of where they live, you know, what their income level is, you can engage. And I think that's a huge, huge opportunity. But one of the most basic things that you need to be aware of, like that's a huge danger, is to be naive in the space of technology. So just like you were saying, fake news, one of the biggest reasons that fake news spreads is because, not because people have an evil intention, but just because they don't know anything else. They're like, oh yeah, I got this on WhatsApp. My friend sent it to me, so it's probably the truth. So I'm going to send it to 20 other friends. And then before you know it, like, you know, um, there was this really funny article, which was like uh, that they were saying that Putin in Russia uh, let loose lions on the street to scare people into staying at their homes for COVID-19. And this was something I just, it spread all over and everything. Or oh, the dolphins in Venice. They were like, oh, there's dolphins that have returned to Venice. And then it turned out that those pictures, the lion pictures were actually from South Africa. It wasn't in Russia. It was like years ago, you know, and everything. So it's just like, I think that ability to identify and even question your source of information is one. That's a basic skill. The other basic skill is protection, digital protection. So very basic things like don't share your password to very advanced things like how do you protect your children online? You know, it's like, I mean, there's there's a whole host of problems there. Then there's digital identity and there's identity theft. And I think being aware of things like that is very, very important to be in the digital space, but to understand that there are dangers and there are responsibilities that we have as digital citizens and as digital heroes to be able to undertake those and responsibly use technology. Because technology is gonna be like any other thing, right? It's gonna be like the knife that you can use to cut or you can use to stab. It's like, I mean, it's any other thing, but I think it's on us to, to process that information, to understand the power of technology and then to channel that power in a good way. Mariel, thank you so much for your time. It was an amazing talk. Stay safe, stay healthy and have a beautiful day. You too. It was it was so so inspiring to talk to you. I think you've left me with a lot of ideas for for new games and new partnerships. So I'm really really excited that we had this conversation, and I'm always happy to hear from like-minded people who think that games are not just a tool for entertainment, but also a tool for education. So I'm always available on social media, and and I'm happy to engage. So thank you so so much.